I'm Sandy Rattray, CIO at Man Group. Welcome to the CIO Agenda podcast. Today, we'll be talking about alpha opportunities and hidden costs in trading. And my guest is Emidio Sculi, Head of Fast Trading Strategies at Man AHL. Welcome, Emidio. Thank you, Sandy. So let's uh, kick off just by exploring the alphas that exist in, in the short term. So what opportunities do exist for alpha in short-term strategies? Uh, well, it's a, it's a very interesting space, uh, the, the short-term space. And I think uh, it's fair to say that uh, there are plenty of opportunities, but they have changed over time. Historically, uh, short-term traders were much more similar to uh, speed up version of, of CTAs. While if we look at sort of the landscape now, the top three layers really look a lot more like a, a slowdown version of NH on high frequency period. And so, and so let's just explain that a little bit more. So a high frequency trader that would be a market maker effectively or somebody operating like a market maker and a CTA would have much slower signals. Um, so you're saying that you think there's been a convergence or a movement for short term strategies from being CTA like to being more market maker like? I think so. In a way, uh, CTAs, they usually tend to be, first of all, from a data perspective, very much price driven. The way they tend to sort of think about forecasting model, it's all about sort of forecasting trends in the market. And the way they sort of trade those forecasts is to be very much uh, uh, liquidity takers. While if we sort of look at the, uh, at the market making space or the, H, or the HFT space, uh, data sets are very different. So information on, on liquidity in the market, such as information on order books or trade volume is a lot more important. If we look at uh, the way they sort of forecast the market, it's a lot more about trying to capture the balance between buyers and sellers. And if you look at the way they trade, it's a lot more about mixing, taking and posting liquidities uh, rather than just sort of taking liquidity. So if we look at sort of the short term space, it used to look a lot more like a, a faster version of what CTAs used to do, both from a data uh, modeling and trading perspective. While if we look at them now, uh, they look a lot more like a slowdown version of a market makers where data sets and trading styles and signals, they look a lot more like uh, what is done by those players traditionally. And if you look at the asset classes where these strategies are employed, I suppose historically the HFTs really started in equities, although now they're dominant in FX and in uh, and, and in futures as well. Um, whilst the CTAs obviously started in futures and FX, and and some of them have moved into equities. So for you, in in very short term strategies, are there are some asset classes which are preferable to others. I think uh, it's definitely fair to say that uh, the more liquid the asset classes are, uh, the easier it is for short-term players to, to operate. And that's simply because of liquidity. Uh, the more liquid the market is, the easier it is to trade faster, the easier it is to not cause uh, impact or having a, a strong footprint in the market. One thing that we've seen more recently is, is gradually uh, short-term traders pushing the boundary uh, on the liquidity space in, in asset classes. So asset classes that traditionally would be uh, less liquid than not uh, the, the, the traditional space of systematic players and definitely not the faster ones, such as, for example, uh, credit or some of the cash fixed income instruments, uh, they started becoming more interesting for, uh, for short-term traders. And the reason for that is because you have asset classes where uh, the level of data set and trading infrastructure available is, uh, is sufficient enough to operate uh, at the faster frequency and in a systematic way, but the, the overall amount of systematic players is not uh, enough there to, to reduce the opportunity. So that makes it a very interesting environment for, for short-term traders. 
Okay, and let's explore a little bit the types of models uh, that you use. So certainly historically, very fast traders really didn't want to talk about their models very much, and they were extremely secretive about them, whilst slower traders tended to think they had more capacity and so would be a bit more upfront or open about what they were doing, what their models look like. So can you try and give us a flavor of you know, what types of models end up uh, in the very short-term trading strategies? Sure, I think it's it's a it's an interesting uh, comparison. The one you made. This too, slow traders usually tend to be more open about the trading strategy, and that's usually because uh, capacity or, or market impact or, or or risking being sort of read by the counterparties is is is, a, is less of a, is less of a worry. Faster traders, they definitely tend to be more concerned about giving away uh, their alpha, or at least the intuition that their alpha is trying to capture. But at the very high level, I think there are for sure three types of, of models that most short-term traders will try to capture, or at least uh, three types of intuitions that, uh, that those uh, short-term traders will try and capitalize on. One is definitely uh, reversion. So mirror reversion in markets, it's it's very it's a very it's a very it's a typical uh, trading strategy that is uh, that is played by the short-term traders. The other one, it's it revolves around information around the order book. So anything that helps uh, understanding uh, imbalances in the market between buyers and sellers, it's a very uh, it's a very useful signal for for short-term traders because it allows them to capture on those uh, market microstructure uh, information that it's uh, uh, it's it's very uh, it's very important for them and very prevalent in their, their data sets. And then finally, the, the other one is also cross-asset information. There is a lot of information between asset classes that uh, can be used in order to to forecast, for example, one asset class with another. And this is something that at the short-term frequency space is tend to be quite uh, quite important and quite useful in in, in forecasting what's ahead. And if we dig a little bit into how you determine whether a short-term signal or model is likely to be of high quality or low quality, how do you do that, and how is that different to slow strategies? Yeah, as usual, that's uh, that's not an easy that's not an easy process. And I think uh, in many ways it's similar to a slower uh, uh, signal to do research on slower signals. Uh, I think the main difference probably is on the uh, is on the focus that there is on trading cost. I think uh, as for slower signals, it all starts with obviously having a solid intuition on on why a signal works. So you know what is it capturing? What is it trying to? Uh, what is it trying to? To, to, to getting paid for. Uh, and then obviously the, the actual research process themselves, it has to be very, uh, very, very robust. So for example, how do we you know minimize overfitting, for example, by having a very robust uh, sort of sample in sample or sample process or, 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 or length of data that is used to test hypotheses, uh, various robustness and, and stability tests also are, are particularly important. Uh, and then finally, obviously a robust set of analytics that allows monitoring both uh, on the research stage and then on the training stage, uh, the difference between expectation and actual realized results. So from this perspective, it's very similar to, uh, to doing research on a slow trading strategy. What is very much different is the, is the importance of trading costs. So looking at trading metrics and, and, and cost is, is a lot more important when doing research on, on faster trading strategies. Okay, and we'll come to that because we need to spend, I think, a, a good part of our session talking about cost. But before we do that, uh, people often think, believe that very short-term strategies have much higher sharp ratios than slower strategies. Is that your experience? I think it's fair to say that in general, a short-term strategy should be more able to capture uh, uh, movements in the market compared to like a, a slower strategy, which means that you should have 
a higher sharp ratio. Uh, it generally tends to be the case. Uh, there are some differences between asset classes. So for example, you mentioned at the beginning that uh, a lot of the short-term players at the beginning were focused on, on equities and then it sort of moved into kind of effects and futures. And I think it's fair to say, for example, that in, in asset classes like equities, where there are a lot more assets, a lot more idiosyncratic information that is specific to various assets, it's easier to generate, for example, higher sharp ratio than compared to effects and futures where the assets are fewer and they tend to be driven by the same uh, common macroeconomic factors. Okay, that's very helpful. Now let's just dig a little bit more into opportunities within uh, markets and also where the new opportunities lie. You touched earlier on on credit, for example. Clearly, there are a lot of people who are players in short-term strategies in futures, in FX and equities. So is it these newer markets, sometimes less liquid markets, that really represent the, the big opportunity for you right now? I think less liquid market or in general markets where the, the, the presence of systematic players is less compared to, to, uh, to more sophisticated markets, such as, for example, effects of futures or equities, are, are one of the most interesting uh, areas for, for short-term players. And the reason for that is simply that uh, ultimately capturing return in the market is all about having an edge, an edge which can be having a, a certain you know, data set or a better ability to process data sets or better trading capabilities. So if you look at asset classes that are less liquid, less dominated by systematic players, uh, such as, for example, credit or, or, or some of the markets in the fixed income space or in alternative energies, it's, uh, there is a lot of data there. Uh, there is enough sort of technology and trading capabilities to allow systematic players to operate. But at the same time, the vast majority of traders are still not uh, systematic uh, and definitely not fast. Uh, that makes it a very fertile ground for, for short-term traders. And maybe just to explore two other aspects of what might make markets interesting for short-term traders. So firstly, do you think it's correct to say that short-term strategies are really long volatility? They tend to do well when volatility levels are high. They tend to do not so well when volatility levels are low. Is that a fair characterization of the opportunity set? And if so, why, why is it fair? To a certain extent, I think uh, it's not always like that and definitely not for all asset classes uh, or for the type of signals. But in general, many asset classes that are traded by short-term traders and many signals that are traded by short-term traders, they tend to capture on uh, they, tend to, they tend to capture large movements in markets that happen usually suddenly. So when there are periods of, of market volatility, uh, they usually just find a lot more opportunities. And especially if the volatility is very uh, is, is uncorrelated between markets, that makes it even easier to sort of capture returns. And how about the composition of, of players on the market? You touched on this already, but, but the composition of the market in terms of uh, concentrated, a small number of dominant players or a very large number of uh, people active in market, institutional um, versus retail mix. Uh, any features that tend to make a market more interesting for you? I would probably say two aspects are definitely important. Uh, the first aspect, which is one that we already sort of touched on at a high level, is uh, the, the, the split between uh, discretionary or manual traders versus systematic uh, or quant players. That definitely uh, drives a lot of the opportunity set. That's simply because uh, humans are, are better able to sort of process information, for example, where the data is patchy, hard to process, or difficult to find. So those markets usually are sort of, you know, more rich of opportunities for a manual trader, while for a faster player, you want 
markets where there is a lot of information. It's uh, it's very easy to access, but, and at the same time, the training infrastructure is very sophisticated. So that's definitely one aspect. Uh, to a certain extent, especially in equity markets, uh, the importance of retail versus institutional it's also a big factor in uh, in understanding profitabilities. So that that definitely would be that definitely would be another one. Okay, and let's we're going to come to costs in a minute, but before we do that. Another thing I want to talk about was risk and how you think about risk in short-term strategies. So most risk models, and certainly the ones that you can buy um, off the shelf from third-party providers, uh, run with daily positions. They take data in every day, and then they calculate some risk numbers out of that. That's clearly not appropriate for very short-term strategies because your positions are going to move around much more quickly than, than a daily model um, would allow for. So how do you think about risk and calculating risk for short-term strategies? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think for, for risk system, and I think more generally for many of the of the components of an infrastructure for uh, short-term traders, it is really important to have an infrastructure that not only is intraday, but it's also it's uh, it's quite specific for for faster strategies. So risk system definitely they need to be uh, built, uh, allowing to sort of measure uh, various risk metrics uh, intraday. Same as also for sort of trading infrastructure and and ability to sort of generate and adapt trades. Generally, what you will find is that definitely on the top end of the of the faster trading space, uh, infrastructure and risk metrics and 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 in general sort of the whole kind of framework that is used to to go. For from alpha to market tends to be sort of built uh, on purpose for, for, for those faster strategies and, and tend to be done in-house rather than outsourced. Okay, well, let, let's now move. You talked about costs, and I think by which I think we're talking about trading costs. Firstly, just before we actually even get into really defining what you mean by that, I think many of our listeners would think that very short-term strategies wouldn't be paying costs, they'd be earning costs, they'd be earning the bid offer spread, they wouldn't be wouldn't be paying impact costs. So uh, but you are clearly not thinking that way. So so can you help clarify that point why why you think about costs when many people might think you'd actually be earning the spread? Yeah, no, that's a very that's a very good question. I think it's it's a it's very much driven by whether the strategy is, is taking liquidity or providing liquidity. If a strategy is providing liquidity, like the typical bread and butter market making strategy that is trying to earn the spread, it's fair to say that costs are different than what you will expect from a strategy that is taking liquidity, which is basically crossing the spread in order to get into a position. Strategies that provide liquidity, they tend to have less costs, although they still have an impact in the market just by virtue of, of interacting with other counterparties. But it's a, it's a different type of order of magnitude and, and, and type of cost than what you have in a strategy that is taking liquidity uh, and, and, and impacting the market with its trading. Normally, when we worry about trading costs for faster strategy, we are more worried about strategies that are taking liquidity rather than strategies that are providing liquidity. So that, that clarifies that. And then let's talk then about how you think about costs. Again, I, I suspect you think about costs very differently to a relatively slower investor or uh, somebody taking positions with holding periods of weeks or months or, or even years. So with these shorter term strategies, how, how do you define costs and how do you think about them? I think the, the most important thing when thinking about costs, especially for faster strategies, but the same, to be honest, applied to a certain extent also to medium and slow frequency strategies is, is making sure that both visible and hidden costs are, are taken into account. So what do you mean by those? What, what is visible and, and hidden? The, the difference between visible and hidden 
comes simply from the from the autocorrelation that we have uh, between our trades. Uh, if I'm a portfolio manager and I have a view on a certain market, uh, let's say I want to buy euro dollar, I issue a hundred million uh, dollar trade, for example, and obviously any uh, sensible execution algo will go and split that trade into smaller trades. Now, the smaller trades that are part of the larger order are are by structure uh, are structurally autocorrelated, and usually also the the larger trade that the portfolio manager has sent also tend to be autocorrelated with further trades the same portfolio manager will do. So when people normally talk about visible cost, they just refer to the difference between the price at which the portfolio manager decided to trade, so-called the decision price, and the actual average price of the various orders in the market. Well, when we look at hidden cost, we think about that in terms of the permanent shift that we caused in the market by virtue of our uh, autocorrelated trading behavior in the market. Okay, and just to be absolutely clear, by autocorrelated, you mean that if there was a trade done in one direction in the previous period, then it's likely that the trade done in the current period is in the same direction and the same instrument. That is right. And that comes from yeah. the fact that you know, in this case, the, the portfolio manager, if he's buying one market, there is a highly chance that the way he's building his forecast is, is gradually building up an exposure. So that's why the, his trade will be autocorrelated, which means that if he buys now, he will probably buy later and, and so on, depending on the holding period of his alpha. Right. So your point is that when you have trades which are autocorrelated, where they're likely to be for several, it could be days, it could be 10 minute periods, it doesn't really matter, but many periods in succession in the same direction, that people sometimes miss the price impact they cause because they tend to measure the cost from the beginning of each period, as opposed to from the beginning of the whole period. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so then, so you have this hidden cost, which conventional cost models would miss. Conventional cost models just say, well, you did, you executed in this period. What was the price at the beginning of the period? What was the mid price at the beginning of the period? What, what cost? What, what, what price did you execute at? And the difference between those two would be the cost. And you're saying if you have multiple trades uh, over periods, uh, sequential periods, then you will miss this this large uh, effect from having uh, orders in the same direction or autocorrelated orders. So how do you calculate a, a, a true trading cost then when you have autocorrelated orders? Well, it, it's not simple because obviously the uh, it, it's, it's measuring an impact that is by construction hidden, but there are a number of models available out there and uh, each of them with different pros and cons. I think one model that is particularly intuitive uh, because it captures in a very simple way the essence of the problem is the so-called uh, expected future flow uh, shortfall. And I think what, what that model does in a, in a nutshell is to trying to uh, sum up the impact of the difference in price between two consecutive orders and the expected uh, number of orders that we're going to have in the same direction. And obviously, the crucial uh, aspect to sort of here fit in this model is how many orders in the future I'm going to be uh, aggregating on. And that's usually a function of the of the alpha uh, horizon of the trading strategy that we're talking about. Okay. And then if you split an order into smaller pieces, how does that impact all of this? Well, smaller orders in general help um, in the sense that uh, on the positive side, having smaller order, it's helpful because it makes order less visible. That's obviously it's helpful from, uh, from an impact perspective. It also makes it easier for your counterparty, so for the market maker to, to internalize uh, the order on their book. Uh, and at the same time, also, uh, it makes it easy for them to manage the risk that they are onboarding once they trade, uh, they trade with you. 
on the negative side, I think the, the problem with smaller order is when you have smaller orders that are autocorrelated. Because when you have lots of, lots of small orders very autocorrelated, that obviously they can cause impact, as we just described, and also they can become very detectable. So uh, HFTs or market makers they can easily forecast what your trade, what next trade is going to be, uh, because they know that there is autocorrelation in your trading profile. And so, what do you do about that? I think it's a balance. So you want to try to slice your your trades in the in in the smallest possible chunks uh, in order to minimize your impact. But you also want to make sure that the autocorrelation profile of this trading behavior produces an overall impact in the market that is uh, of the right size given the alpha that you're trying to capture. Okay. Well, let's move and and talk about models in just a little bit more detail. So many of our listeners uh, may be familiar uh, with. Uh, the implementation shortfall uh, approach or model, uh, which was developed uh, by Andre Perold uh, about 30 odd years ago now, so it's pretty well understood, where essentially you look at your fill price when you're doing an, an, a trade. So what was your average price? And you compare it to the price before you started. It gets a bit more complicated in terms of how you define before you started, uh, but we might just take the mid price before we started trading, before we had the impact. It could also be, of course, the moment when you decided you wanted to do a trade. But you and a number of colleagues have developed a model called the expected future flow shortfall. So what is the expected future flow shortfall model? So the expected future flow shortfall model is essentially a model that tries to augment the implementation shortfall in order to account for hidden cost. So the idea is, uh, that the, the true shortfall is made of the difference between the price uh, between two consecutive orders and, and the sum of all the expected orders in the same direction that we're going to put in the market. Okay. And what, when do you use it? What, what, what types of situations is this most, most useful for? Well, in one way, you want to use it for every trading strategy. Hidden costs are going to be paid by every trading strategy, whether it is fast or slow. But in practice, it makes a much bigger difference for trading strategies that are large with respect to the trading flow that they put into the market compared to market volumes. And, and it's bigger for strategies that have a very autocorrelated trading profile. So faster trading strategies, they naturally tend to have an higher impact. That's why making sure that you measure it properly is it's, it's crucial. Okay, and they have a higher impact just because they're trading more often, not not because they're a, a large portion portion of the volume typically. I think what 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 matters a lot is the fact that they trade faster and in a very autocorrelated fashion. Right. Okay. And then, uh, how does a model like the one you talked about respond to different market conditions? More volatile, less volatile. Uh, more liquidity in the market, less liquidity in the market. How does it adjust to those environments? I think that the main variable there uh, that drives impact is uh, is market volume. So it's fair to say that the thinner is liquidity in a market, uh, the more uh, the more pronounced the impact will be. While when a market is very deep, uh, there are lots of volume, whether traded or posted, the more the the, the, the less the impact will be in that market from trading. Okay, let's move on and talk about uh, time horizons for orders. So the classic implementation shortfall model really sort of assumed that you knew what your your execution time frame was going to be. It's particularly well suited for you're going to do an order across the whole day, and you have some price at the beginning of the day. It could be the open. It could be the price that you took your decision and you compare your fill price to this starting price, uh, whatever it was. But it assumed 
that you would be done within a day and that you'd be happy being done um, within a day. So how should you think about a world where actually you're not sure how long your order is going to take and you might have multiple different horizons depending on what the conditions look like? Yeah, so in terms of, of the from the perspective of how do we model uh, impact for, for, for that, it's uh, it's about trying to understand what is the average holding period for the for the signal. So uh, it, we won't know in advance how many orders in the same direction we will do, but uh, but what we can do is to estimate in average what is the average length of our of our trading in the same direction, or what is our average holding period, and that's what you usually use to to, to kind of uh, tune the parameter of the model to measure impact. And and so now let's move on and talk about how short-term alpha signals uh, combined with costs in, in these uh, shorter-term uh, trading strategies. Uh, at one level, you might imagine that you simply say, well, you know, I want a high alpha strategy uh, and it'll probably have high costs, but so long as the alpha is bigger than the cost, then it's a good strategy. If the alpha is lower than the cost, then it's a bad strategy. Is, is that how you think about it or is it more subtle than that? Uh, I think, well, in a way, it is as simple as that, but in another way, it's a little bit more complex. I think what's, what's more complex is that uh, one wants to try to, uh, to optimize the, the alpha that one can generate at various horizons and, and the cost that it takes in order to, to, to build up the forecast that, is, that, that the alpha is trying to capture. So, for example, you may have a, a signal that is very fast uh, and obviously as a result of that, very expensive. Uh, and its alpha horizon is very, very short, while at the same time you may have some signals that are a little bit slower, and obviously they tend to be, uh, they tend to be fast, they tend to be less, exp they tend to be less, uh, less expensive. And so the, the solution is not to put everything obviously into the very fast, higher alpha signals, but it's to try to understand, for example, if the signal that is a little bit slower is giving me a, a clean forecast on a, on a slightly longer period, can I then use, for example, my faster signals to sort of modulate my trade trajectory in order to, to capture the alpha from broad signals. So I think that that interaction between uh, signals of different horizons is, is actually quite, quite important in, in tuning the, the speed of the strategies. Okay, so you need to model a lot of different horizons. Uh, maybe just again for our audience, what, what are some examples of shorter term type signals versus relatively longer term, nothing is long term in this area, but relatively long term, some just examples of signals that uh, you've experienced that are very short term versus a little bit longer. Yeah, so for example, the, 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 the very fast extreme of, of patterns that one can capture, uh, you definitely have uh, very fast, for example, a market microstructure based signal. So there is lots of information in the market microstructure of the order book that in order to be captured it needs to be very fast. So this is uh, uh, order book imbalances, trade pressures, uh, trade imbalances, all of this is, is very, it tends to be very, very fast. Uh, if you kind of, if we kind of go on the lower end of the spectrum, uh, relationships such as, for example, information between asset classes that sort of spillover uh, from one to another, or, or, or sort of like faster version of trend that tend to be much slower. Okay, and so for each of these categories, the, the faster and the slower, then how do you really measure the alpha decay? Well, clearly with any of these, you can stretch your execution over a longer period. Uh, but if you're getting a lot of alpha decay over a longer period, the signal won't work anymore. So how do you measure the alpha decay with, with respect to you know, time? Uh, in other words, after you've generated the initial signal? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's that's not an easy it's not an easy task to do. I think uh, there are two aspects of it: how you do it when you are simulating the strategy, and how you do it when you're actually trading the strategy and monitoring whether that alpha decay is changing over time. I think a simulation uh, stage or when you're doing the research, it's slightly easier in the sense that what you can do is just to sort of check uh, various performance metrics. For example, sharp ratio would be an obvious one, and see how it changes. Uh, if you start lagging your signals, for example. Uh, so a signal that, for example, tends to have a pretty persistent sharp ratio uh, that is robust to, to lagging, that means that obviously the alpha horizon is, is lower than, for example, a signal that in comparison uh, tends to sort of decay its sharp ratio very quickly as soon as we start lagging it. Once we start trading, obviously it's a lot harder to sort of understand uh, if alpha is decaying or not, for example. And, and so for you as an investor, when you're trying to work out the the right trajectory, do you do that by some sort of optimization, or what do you do? How do you work out the right the right trading trajectory for different speed signals? So there are different approaches that that we that, that we sort of use and market participants use. So one is much more uh, based on sort of optimization. So you can obviously try to map out your signals to a number of forecast horizon, and then you can try to map out. Your, your trading cost or, or your cost of entering position to, to, to trades of various sort of length. And obviously you can build kind of an optimizer which has got th those two metrics and any other metrics that you want to add, such as risk limits or correlation uh, into like a, a, an objective function that you are essentially maximizing. So this is definitely kind of one approach. And obviously the advantage of this is that it's very neat from a modeling perspective. What is harder about this is obviously estimating all these quantities is a lot harder. Uh, the other kind of side of the approach is to have something a little bit more heuristic where you try to sort of map out your signals to various horizons and, and, and you try to sort of map out styles at which you want to trade various horizons and, and you sort of treat, treat your signals in a more independent manner. The advantage here is that it's a lot easier to model those quantities, a lot easier to estimate, uh, but obviously you sacrifice a little bit the, the, the model, uh, the optimality of the model. Okay, and then finally, when you're doing all this work, thinking about costs for quite fast strategies or very fast strategies, how does that help when thinking about more traditional, slower strategies, which also, of course, have to execute in the market? Does it help think about how to implement those strategies better? Yeah, it definitely does, and there are uh, in particular two aspects that are, that are very uh, that are very sort of synergetic of, of the two uh, of the two areas. So the first one is obviously uh, the infrastructure. So a lot of the of the trading infrastructure, trading capabilities that one needs to build for faster trading strategies can be leveraged out completely by slower trading strategy. And the advantage that you have there is is a, is a substantial reduction in cost and impact of these uh, of those uh, of those medium or lower frequency strategy where cost, although less important than for faster strategies, are still like a substantial part of, of the PNL. And the other aspect is obviously the ability to sort of combine uh, faster signals with slower signals. So being able to sort of have a, a suite of fast signals that complement the trading of slower signals and, for example, help modulate the flow, for example, accelerating uh, entry into position when it's advantageous in the short term versus slowing down when it's less advantageous is the other areas where synergies are. And, and maybe I could just explore that infrastructure word with you just a little bit more. Clearly, it's hard to make a slower infrastructure work fast. So something which could trade once a day is not going to do a very good job of trading intraday. And something which trades maybe a few times a day is not going to do very well at trading much faster or, or low latencies. So how do you think about the optimal infrastructure for fast strategies? How do you think about developing that? What does it look like? Uh, 
can it run on coding languages that more traditional strategies use, or do you need to do you need to run on a different infrastructure? Yeah, sure. There are, there are, sure, there are lots of there are lots of sort of aspects here. So I think from a perspective of sort of what are the crucial components, I think uh, it is really important if you want to trade faster strategy in a in a in a sort of you know top tier quality uh, way is to have a very solid uh, trade generation stage and a very solid execution stage. The trade generation stage is very much where uh, all the sort of decision about uh, how to sort of package uh, signals into trades, how to sort of net and merge signals, uh, choosing which execution style to attribute to every signals uh, are made. And then the execution stage is what actually then implements those decisions in the market. So by actually going and placing an order uh, on a certain order book, for example, or with a certain kind of practice. So both, both components needs to be needs to be there. For a, for a tier one uh, fast trading infrastructure. From a perspective of sort of platform, when you were mentioning trading languages, obviously uh, ex the execution world, uh, it's it's a lot more low latency. So having languages there, uh, programming languages and infrastructure that can cope with that level of latency is important. So usually, you know, Java or, or, or similar sort of languages that are able to operate at certain speeds are, are the ones that are more, more used. While I think uh, languages that are more used for research, such as Python, for example, they, they can they are more common in the in the trade generation stage where there is a lot more uh, research and analysis that sort of need to be done in a kind of dynamic way. Okay, wonderful. Well, so we've discussed today how high frequency trading and short term trading strategies have converged to a significant degree. That there isn't a separation in the same way as you might have seen historically between very fast strategies and slower strategies. It's more a continuous spectrum. And of course, we've talked about costs and how to think about costs in a, a faster world, one where you may often be doing the same order multiple times in the same direction and where your costs are likely to be quite a large uh, portion of your alpha. So thank you for joining us today, Emilio. And thank you to our audience for listening. You can follow the CIO Agenda on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms to receive each new episode. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you, Sammy.